Hey everybody, welcome once again to Time Out with Kevin Gallagher. I'm, I'm your host, it's a pleasure to have you here once again. And I got a phone in front of me and then the guest is far away and this time he's up out in uh, Ontario, Canada. This is um, somebody whose show I listen to quite a bit and has really, really changed the way that I look at the world and, and the different paradigms that I used to have. And, and you've shattered them, m- many of them, my friend, and I thank you. Um, Alan Watt, you can hear him. I think Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night at 8 p.m. on uh, RBN, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we get rocking and rolling, uh, what do you want to say about yourself? So if anybody out there who's watching, they're not familiar with you, mm-hmm. uh, what would you like them to know about you? Well, basically that I've spent a life being awake and understanding and is looking into the causes and effects of uh, the behavior changes in society and uh, came to the conclusion very young uh, that society and culture uh, was deliberately uh, being directed along a certain path that was music that was um, all entertainment basically and then when I got a hold of Plato's book written 2,300 years ago uh, called The Republic and reading it, he has other books on culture and culture creation and how you lead millions of people along a desired direction. I realized it never stopped. Um, I also knew that we were going into a, a European amalgamation long before the governments ever admitted it. I, I traveled th- across Europe. I wondered why the same laws were passed at the same time in every country and yet they never mentioned it, that this was an international uh, agreement they'd had. And then I saw the same thing happen in the Americas, and we were going into the... Actually, we are amalgamated already, and it's been out in mainstream media here in Canada. Yeah. That's amazing. How, how, uh, how, how did this all kind of uh, sit with you when you started to find out that there was a lot of control from the top, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, that worked its way down? And the second part is... What exactly is the top? What are the mm-hmm. elite? Can you explain that for the people at home? Yeah, well, how you deal with it is um, you can only absorb so much at a time. Uh, people today have too much access to too much, I call it uh, data, not just information but data, which is totally confusing. You have to organize yourself to go through and study it, and you, st- you start studying it by, by history. And, and realizing that the masses in every country uh, were always ruled by a small dominant minority. And that's the term they use. People like Aldo Huxley called it the dominant minority. And, and you, you, you start to, to realize that um, it's never really changed. The United States, uh, at least theoretically, was the first country to be born where the people, for a little while at least, uh, had a say in their affairs and it was the only country born uh, into existence that was not in a form of slavery at least again theoretically uh, every system that existed prior to that um, was European and in Europe you were a subject to the king or the queen you were property of the king or queen and I, I, the people today don't realize how unique that was and, and how short-lived it was, really, too, because it was under attack immediately as soon as it was formed. Yeah, well, you make some very good points, because if you look through history, the concept of freedom and people actually being free, and I know it's an oxymoron, but living under some form of good government really hasn't existed except for very small pockets in history. I mean, do, I mean, do you do agree with that, right? Yes, and even then, um, it's, it's, again, what... Uh, 
Charles Galton Darwin, who was a grandson of Charles Darwin, said in the 1950s, now he wrote a book called The Next Million Years, that's quite the boast on behalf of the elite, uh, he said that there's always existed slavery in one form or another, and we today, in the 1950s, he says, are creating a more sophisticated form of slavery. And, well, you see, that's, that's happened. That's the society we live in today. Um, we don't realize that we're given more propaganda about being free than actually experiencing freedom. It's all propaganda. Uh, the same kind of propaganda that brought us into this World War III, which we're living through. This is a war, a hundred years war, to change the entire world. Uh, not uh, suddenly drummed up in 2001 on September the 11th, but drummed up a long time ago, and September the 11th was just a kick-off to get it all into action. So we're living an agenda, an agenda worked out like long-term business plans are worked out by big uh, corporations, and we don't realize that every major change in our lives is going to affect us personally, uh, was planned generally before we were even born. Right. And uh, you talk about Plato and the book uh, The Republic. Mm -hmm. In there, I believe he talks about the cave, the cave scenario. Do you want to get into that a little bit? Cause yeah, well, he, he, actually, he actually goes into the cave, I think, in Timaeus, uh, another writing that he did. But uh, he talks about how your reality is shaped for you. And he gives the allegory of a few people being born and brought up in a cage. Uh, or a cave where they can only see the back of the cave they can't look towards the entrance and so they see the lights behind them uh, changing as the day wears on and as people or objects outside pass by they see shadows on the cave wall and they build up a whole philosophy uh, to do with what these shadows mean and so on and they don't know any of the truth they don't know there's even a back of the cave or an entrance to the cave one escapes, gets into the real world, comes back and says, my God, here's the real reason why we see these shadows. There's a big world out there. And, and they wanted to kill him because he was shattering their illusion. Their whole, the whole concept of reality and philosophy they'd, they'd built up by, uh, by being in the cave. Well, that's how the whole of society is. We're given a fictional reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's that reality, that perception that's been built around people. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I've heard you talk about this, and also, you know, when I talk to people, even people that kind of have the same view on life, the same outlook as myself, a lot of people aren't really, really aware of what's going on. They think they really understand what's going on around them, but when I talk to people for 10 or 15 minutes, you know, I hear like the same radio show host, so they're doing nothing more than what a you know, monkey see, monkey do, or what a parrot would do by mimicking the words, and I hear the same expressions. It's not like they're actually going out and doing their own research and making it their own and thinking for themselves. And I know that on your program, this is something that I've heard you really, you really stress being able to think for yourself and getting out of the programming that's being you know, hit to you through shows that what I like to pick on a lot. I call it American IDLE because mm -hmm. it makes people just sit there very idle and do nothing. Yeah. And that's what they're talking about at the water cooler at work. And one thing I learned along the way is if you really want to know what a person's involved in, what they're you know, what what they're about, and what they're really paying attention attention to, listen to them for for five or ten minutes. Listen to what they talk about, and you'll know everything you need to know. Yes, I know, and that's what Kissinger said in his book. Uh, I think between two ages, 
he said that uh, the people shortly because of the conditioning would be unable to talk about anything that wasn't on the previous night's news they said they'll, they'll expect the media to do their thinking and reasoning for them well that's what you're talking about right there that's what you're going to hear tomorrow is what's on today's news that's going to be the chit chat at the water cooler they can't think uh, for themselves they don't know how even to interact with each other on a truly human uh, basis anymore I got two books in front of me. The first is one written by a guy you're well aware of, the big new Brzezinski, the Grand Chessboard. Yep. And I told you before we started taping, I'm going through and reading this book, and I'm a, I'm a pretty good reader. I read a lot, and I can normally zip right through a book, especially one like this, which is only about you know 200-something pages. Mm -hmm. But um, I'll tell you, Alan, I get, I get reading this book, I get about 10, 15 pages in, and I have to just go and put it down because... I cannot believe what I'm reading. The, the level of arrogance and the word that you use that I think is, just fits this psychopathic nature of, of the people that we're dealing with. And someone like Brzezinski, who is behind Obama, uh, and his whole history with you know, hating the Russians and, and, and being the guy who started the Mujahideen, which we know is Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda now, uh, what do you have to say about you know, the pathology, the, the, mm -hmm. the total psychotic nature of these people. These people are, if not, if not born for the task, they certainly are recruited for their task because of those natures that they have. Uh, they, they don't think uh, killing one person to, to attain uh, an end is, would be one thing for them. Uh, these people think in, in whole countries and maybe the deaths of millions of people to obtain a strategic objective or a financial objective. It's generally geopolitics to do with finance. And uh, we can't even relate to them humanly, these people. They can sleep at night w without sleeping pills. They can go to parties and drink and be happy. Uh, and it isn't until you go into, as you say, a psychopathic's nature and study psychopathy that you understand the difference between these types and the general population. They don't have what we think of as a human conscience and they cannot put themselves in, in the shoes of those uh, that are going to get wiped out, to, that they plan to wipe out to have a strategic ending. Um, we can't relate to them. From what I've understood and from the research that I've been doing about these people, who I just call the elite for no better term because it's the term they use for themselves, mm -hmm. you know, these people just as you said they have no conscience it's just there's nothing yeah. there to, there's no guilt there's no there's, there's nothing there i mean i i can't picture being that way and these people even i think speak of themselves as being a separate species mm -hmm. from from the rest of humanity is that correct they, they do in fact they do uh, certainly champion charles darwin's uh, whole idea or religion of, uh, of evolution and they do believe that they're the most evolved type on the planet and we're all inferior to them we haven't evolved up to that level and uh, uh, they, they rationalize you see only psychopaths can truly climb up to the top ruthlessly you have to be ruthless to get to the top and these big uh, corporations or even in the political arena you have to be utterly ruthless you, you can have no conscience and you must have the intellect to be cunning and, ha and never be caught red-handed at it so it's only natural these type will always get to the top in, a, in an economic type of, of system a commercialized system it's the fact this is their system they gave us their system yeah yeah um 
I think a good a good thing to bring up at that point when you talk about their system is somebody I learned about through you, which is John D. Uh, I think he even used the moniker for himself of 007. He did, yeah, he did. <laughs> so why don't we get into that? Because John D. was, what, like around the 1500s, I believe? And yeah. Can you get into that? Because this is one of the things that I heard from you when I listened to it in one of your podcasts. I had to rewind it a couple of times and listen to it, and then I had to go sit down and think about it for a while because it just, it just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Well, John D was one of a group of people that sprung up in the 1500s in England who all belonged to this uh, Rosicrucian order, they called it a society, uh, a fraternity and they they were mainly advisors around kings and queens in Europe he was one of the advisors to to Queen Elizabeth I and he he actually drafted up the whole part about the British Empire the term hadn't been used before, British Empire he only had Scotland, England, Ireland and Wales uh, so he coined that term and he talked about it being based on a it will be based on a form of free trade but of course you had to capitulate if you joined them uh, to uh, the orders of London London would rule them and, and that really is where the whole the concept of free trade um, came from uh, every country in the British Empire is part of the same system and since uh, World War One, definitely they've been bringing more and more countries into this same system under different names um, NATO even everything that you join internationally is part of the same one world system it brings you closer ties as they call it and, and uh, this is interesting because from John Dee onwards, and John Dee had the largest collection of, of, of uh, books in Britain at that time. He was the biggest librarian. Uh, he had the histories of the world there. He knew how societies could be ruled. Machiavelli was just a minor player uh, compared to John Dee and his cohorts. So uh, these guys knew how to run whole nations of people, how to create cultures, how to alter cultures, how to guide cultures, and how to profit and benefit off the people. So it was to be an ongoing war. Uh, that eventually uh, changed into uh, the, the Cecil Rhodes Foundation. They took over uh, their part of it in the 1800s and, and furthered the plan to also bring in under their, their, their auspices the world's resources. That's mineral rights, uh, gold, silver, uh, all precious metals and so on. And he was set out to do that. They joined with the, the, the Lord Alfred Milner Group, the Round Table Society, and they became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, who drafted up the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. So these guys have always been on the go. The American branch is called the Council on Foreign Relations, and they have over 200 members uh, working inside the federal government as bureaucrats of the United States of America. And these are the, where the think tanks all spring from. And if you look at our current election, you got the Chicago arm of the uh, CFR through Obama. You have, of course, Biden, who's CFR uh, uh, on the Republican side. It's no different. And it just looks like you have, in these elections, you have different factions of the elite or even within the same group, like the CFR, vying for who's going to have power, kind of like what you would see in my own experience with local elections where you have different power struggles within the local political parties. Yes. And I found that when I got politically active, 
I, I got active through first the Republican Party, and I figured, okay, all the battles I'm going to have are going to be with the Democrats in town. But I found that wasn't really the case. I didn't battle them until there was like an election coming around. I had the infighting within my own party to figure out, you know, who was going to rise to the top and and who was going to dominate on particular issues. Mm -hmm. Yet you'll find that the, the historian, the authorized historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, was Professor Carol Quigley. And he wrote a book uh, alongside the, the, his tragedy in hope. It was called The Anglo-American Establishment. In the 1960s, he wrote it. And he said, he said, there has been a secret government, a parallel government running America for the last 60 years. And he said, right. he said that um, they put in their own people at the top of all parties. He says, it's not necessary you have everyone and every party as a member. It's only necessary you have the top people, the candidates and their advisors as the members of the CFR. And he says, and we guide the future. So you've had a parallel government all along. Yeah. It's amazing, because I look at somebody like Brzezinski, and you look at what's going on right now, he's the guy basically backing Obama. His son Mark is working with McCain's people. Mm -hmm. His son Ian is hooked up into the Defense Department working on that missile problem between Poland and uh, Russia, and you've got all that mess over there. His daughter Mika is on Joe Scarborough, you know, getting to be, well, it's a different network, but fair and balanced reporting about it on MSNBC. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's just kind of frames for me the whole picture of the game that's currently being played in the media and the scam that's being run on the American people and the rest of the world. Yes, uh, it's interesting too to go into tragedy and hope because it quickly goes through the techniques they've used in the past to get countries to go to war and in there he mentions all the top uh, newspaper magnets of the time and they were all members of the Council of Foreign Relations. So you see, our whole perception of reality has been managed all along. Uh, all, all information. See, knowledge is power. You cannot share true knowledge with the public or you lose the control of, of power. So they never share true power with the public. We are kept truly in a fantasy, a propaganda fantasy world um, and these characters and their offspring um, are dedicated to this mind you they're well financed and well paid for it but they're dedicated to this cause of bringing in a, a global system uh, and it's not uh, a global society where we can put our, our shoes off take our shoes off and breathe a sigh of relief is to change our whole way of living and is to bring in a regulated society from birth to death where no individual will have any real say in their life whatsoever. Even the right to breed, that's all part of this hundred years war. That's all part of it because they have to change what's normal, uh, what you see now with the cops and everything else and the way that they're treating the rest of the population. And I learned actually from you listening to your show, you know, and it was one of these things where I always kind of knew it, but the light didn't go on until I heard, heard you put it together. And that is, you know, what we considered normal, say, you know, 30, 50 years ago is not what's normal now. And, and normal is very flexible. It's like Stretch Armstrong. You can just yes. keep stretching it out and the perceptions change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, one of the things that I don't ever want to see is this beating that the cops do on people for, for nothing, mm -hmm. you know to become what's normal, where somebody gets pulled over by a cop and they say, well, I guess I'm just supposed to get beat today because yeah. that's the normal thing to do. I guess I'm going to my hospital. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, is that possible? I can't imagine thinking that way. It's sad, but I, I, see, I knew years ago 
um, that when they changed see they had to make a war on the family unit that was one of their main uh, planks basically was to destroy the family unit and big players wrote about this many big players wrote about this in their own books including Lord Bertrand Russell uh, they said before government can, can fulfill its mission to, to literally order the world they'd have to destroy the family and therefore they'd have to separate parents from children they wanted a generation to grow up where the state had given the children their values and the media would take over from there from school now you've had a generation who've grown up with the worst kind of possible uh, rap uh, music, uh, nihilism, nihilism in their, their writings, in the stuff that they watch on television and so on. It's nihilistic, it's barbaric, it, it's dog-eat-dog. That's the new value system, winners and losers. And the only outlet they see is becoming like the video games of the guys in black uniforms and the video games. They can actually get a chance to wear those uniforms, wield the big uh, sticks, uh, have the big guns, and beat up the public. They've raised a generation for this very time in history. That was intentional. That's how far back they planned this kind of thing. Because you're talking about things like free trade with John Dee going all the way back to the 1500s, which we were talking about a few minutes ago. And whenever I, heard that, whenever I hear that term, free trade, Alan, my first question, the knee-jerk that I have is, well, free trade for who? Yes. Free isn't free. Somebody's got to pay for it. It's not even free trade. What it is really, it's like everything else they tell you, there's a double meaning. Uh, it's free for the big boys who are authorized to take part in it. Little guys who are unauthorized won't get a, a leg in the door, a foot in the door. And it's also, it's also added on to with the United Nations Charter uh, and the Economic Union of uh, Britain and Europe and the Americas, uh, uh, the Summit of the Americas, the free flow of labor and goods. Now, it's authorized labor only because the system they're bringing in will be that you cannot move from your own area, not even your country, but your own area, unless you're authorized to go by a corporation that needs you. Right. That, that's what's and coming in. Figure out who you're going to work for. It sounds like what I heard about China, where you, know, you got the two-child system that I don't have any more children than you know whatever the state says, and then they say, well, you know, when you grow up, you're going to be an electrician. Or we just had the Olympics, right, over in mm -hmm. China. So yeah. I mean, I'm looking at these little gymnasts. I figured they couldn't be more than you know 12 years old, and it turns out some of them really weren't. But they they're trained from when they can barely walk. They say, oh, this person's flexible. They can move. Okay, well. We'll train them to be a gymnast from when they're like three years old. Yes, and you have school to work here that's now institutionalized where they're going to pick you at school, see what they think or decide that your better qualities are and train you in that part only of, of, of life. And you'll know nothing else about, say, the humanities or English history or anything like that. You won't get taught any of that. You'll be trained just for your task. Yeah. And, uh, you know, continue. Well, that, that's the whole thing. China was set up to be the model state for the world. And that's what the United Nations has said to us all, that we are going to end up emulating them and their system of collectivism. As, uh, you see, another big think tank that's related to the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR is the Club of Rome. Uh, and the Club of Rome are the guys who dreamed up the whole scam of global warming. Right. And they write about that in their own book. It's called The First Global Revolution. 
Now, they also say in that book, though, uh, that they'd looked at all the different systems for controlling populations and what they'd favored. Now, they're speaking on behalf of the global elite in the West. What we favored the most was collectivism, which is uh, communism, basically. But so you have a fascist elite at the top. Yeah, you have a fascist elite at the top uh, who have all the, the, the freedoms you could imagine. Uh, then they have a massive bureaucracy running us all down below it in a communistic fashion. That's what's coming in. I believe it was Khrushchev that said that the difference between communism and socialism is that communism is socialism in a hurry. That, that's right. That's what he said. And he also said something which we will forget. He said, uh, it says America will fall and decay from within without us firing a shot. How did he know that? Because because those guys in, in control of your media and culture creation industry and the education system are, were already working on it. That's why. <laughs> already working on it. Listen, i got about uh, two minutes left to go in this show. Uh, I'd like to have you plug your website. I know I plugged it in the beginning. Anything that you want people to be aware of with your uh, website, we can't promote anything on Access, so, mm-hmm. but we can promote how people can get more information. So mm-hmm. what, what can people do to find out more about what you're doing on the web and about Alan Watt? Yeah, well, they can go into the website and, and, and look at all the free talks I've given on these topics and more to do with the, the histories leading up to this agenda and where we're going from here. And it's, it is cutting through the matrix. They can check it, uh, check it at dot com. They can check out that. And there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of history, uh, players, uh, books that they've written on this topic. I never speculate. I use what the big boys write themselves. And, and it's astonishing to realize these books are out there gathering dust in old libraries, never being read. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I went and bought the Grand Chessboard off of a very popular uh, website, and I got it for n- not as much as I thought I would. I got it for a very good price, and I know that this book is disappearing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find. Uh, the Anglo-American Establishment, which is a book we haven't talked about yet, but uh, there's this book here that I'm going through, and that's absolutely mind-blowing looking at how everything is just coming together looking at Cecil Rhodes you know your RIAAs all that because we call it the CFR here as you pointed out because we don't have anything royal in this country that's right uh, I think that would kind of make it rather obvious one minute to go Uh, what would you like to add before we go bye-bye well people have to realize where we're being guided and uh, that uh, this war is a war to change the entire planet, uh, the way we live, even the right to procreate or even be sterilized, that's coming down their pike too. They're talking about that, and, and other countries, even Switzerland is talking about that. And we better start realizing now to start saying no before we go any further because these boys are on a roll. They've announced it's a hundred years' war, and we can't allow them to have their way. This is, this is a war on us. It's a war on us, right. all of us. We're the mark. Yeah. We're the mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alan Watt, uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me here tonight on a timeout. And uh, folks, uh, you can go, and I'm going to plug your website one more time. That's CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Great information. Like I said at the beginning, I literally went and I downloaded everything. And it's like 4.7 gigs of some great information of his talks, etc. And he really has a way of putting it together uh, for you in, in ways that you just go see for yourself. Download it. 
Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome once again to Time Out with Kevin Gallagher. I'm of course your host, and it's a pleasure to have you here each week. And we're doing a kind of impromptu part two, a second show with Alan Watt from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And uh, man, I've learned a lot from from listening uh, to, to him on the radio. You can check that out Monday, Wednesdays, and Friday nights. Make sure I got this right, Alan. 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Republic Broadcasting Network. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Hey, uh, before we kind of covered a whole mishmash of different subject matter, and tonight we're going to look at really the uh, secret societies, as they're called. Um, I don't really know if that's a very accurate name for them, but they do operate outside of the public eye, which I guess makes them kind of secret. There's a book right here that I'm holding in my hand um, called The Anglo-American Establishment, and uh, written by Carol Quigley, who was an insider to the Council on Foreign Relations and had, as we covered earlier, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had a lot of access to their libraries, everything, you know, about what they're, what they're about and their agenda and what they're up to. Um, you want to go back, you know, earlier, like, uh, say, with Cecil Rhodes and, and some of this to really kickstart how this got, got really established? Yeah, well, we do know that in Britain, for instance, Britain never gave up, at least the monarchy never gave up the, the reins of power. Uh, they decided to give the public what they called democracy uh, a sham, in other words, a complete farce that would keep them from rebelling every few years. It would, it would actually make them work for the system and allow themselves to be taxed for the system. Right. And how it, so what they did was set up a parallel type of government with real movers and shakers that moved behind the scenes. And that really emerged into the Cecil Rhodes Foundation as one of their main branches of doing this very thing. And so you'll find that anyone who was anyone at all in the 1800s, the late 1800s in Britain, when Britain was at the peak of its empire, uh, they were all members of the Cecil Rhodes Foundation. Uh, they started wars. Uh, uh, that's in regular history books now. Rhodes uh, had a mercenary armor, army, and he did attack South Africa. He kicked off the Boer War. He had reporters brought in who lied about the war and said that the Boers attacked the British. And then the government stood back and then says, well, what can we do? We've got to go and back up these, these poor guys who are being attacked by the Africans. And that gave Britain the official reason to go into South Africa and take it over. So by, by using deception and intrigue and, and acting technically outside, outside the bounds of government, um, they could get this job done much quicker. Whatever their world plan was, they could get it done. Now, if we jump forward in history, Margaret Thatcher, who was Prime Minister of Britain, reiterated that very thing. She said, I belong to a parallel government now that she's left politics. She said, we run the world. We, we are the real movers and shakers. She said, we're all ex-prime ministers and presidents and top bureaucrats who all know each other. And democracy is just too untidy, too costly, too slow to get things done. So we are the real movers. Well, 
that that is the whole system. They have a parallel government they set up with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, which merged with the Lord Alfred Milner Foundation. That's what they call the Round Table Society, that also belongs to the United Nations. Every major um, uh, meeting they have at the United Nations, they then sp- split up into the Round Tables as a debate to different right. parts of the topics, and that became uh, eventually given. They were given a royal charter to exist under the Royal Institute of International Affairs. So that is the main world governing body is the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Every non-royal uh, or commonwealth country is called the Council on Foreign Relations, and that is what the United, Nation, the United States branches, and that's in the Harold Pratt Building in New York. Uh, they are the, the American branch. Their whole goal is not only to bring in a world system uh, and world finance, a standardization process for the whole planet, uh, but also to bring in what they claim is a regulated society. Uh, we've heard about family planning. They want to bring in global planning and decide who will get born and who will not. What they really want is a new type of human to serve them better at the top. Yeah. That's it. It sounds to me something like uh, right out of H.G. Wells. But, uh, well, H.G. Wells was a member of that society, yeah. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. Uh, the, uh, it sounds like something out of the time machine with the trog lights and, and all that stuff. Yeah. But you were talking earlier about democracy, and, and the thing is I know that here in the United States, here in Canada, the... Uh, the we, we were never set up in this country. You know, we weren't intended to be a democracy. The way mm-hmm. I define democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what to have for dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, the sheep's always going to lose. And, and nowhere do you see in our Constitution, you know, the, the term majority rule. I mean, that will make the hair on the back of my neck kind of stand on end. Yeah. Because the, the one thing that I that I get out of reading our Constitution when I go through it is that it was all about checks and balances and protecting the voice of minorities. Now, in the town I live in, we even have written into our charter, for example, things about minority representation and that one party can't have, like, all the members on a particular board. You're going to have to have some members from another party on a board. So there's even some things like that written locally into our boards. Mm Democracy to me is mob rule. It's, yes. it's the rule of the many to rule over and lord over the few and terrorize. That word comes back in again, that, that root word that has the same word tyranny, to tyrannize the minority. I mean, how do you react yeah. to that? Well, again, democracy, even though they'll say that it's mob rule, it's not really. Because, see, the, the bulk of the population will, will always go in the direction the elite want them to go. And so they can count on the masses to, to fall for the, for the bait, for the trap. And under the guise of democracy, they can say, okay, 50%, 70% have, have accepted this. What's your problem? Why won't you go along with it? So we'll make it law. Uh, this is the trick of democracy that they play on us. But we've never really had any input. The United States was the first country, at least theoretically, that was set up. Uh, where the people were in charge of their government, and that was the whole point about checks and balances. Prior to that, every country that ever existed had been uh, basically a form of slavery where the monarch owned the country and the people. Uh, and could do as he wished with it and so the United States was the first country it was, that was supposed to be the other way around and we know of course that as soon as the US was formed uh, it's, it's interesting to me that people think that Britain just gave up 
after the, the Revolutionary War. I mean, Britain has never... A country that works in centuries, they plan in centuries ahead, don't just sit back and say, okay, you won, uh, let's shake hands and go our separate ways. They never gave up. And the, the trick... Uh, they knew it too, that through money and commerce and treaties, uh, they could take the U.S. down over time. Over time. When you look at what you're talking about, you have... Many of the founding fathers, as it turns out, were members of the Masonic Order. Yeah. And I know that this is kind of like, to me, the way I kind of look at the Masons and the rest of the uh, different secret societies you can get into, like uh, the CFR, the Rosicrucians, etc. Um, not all Masons are, you know, say, members of the CFR, Rosicrucians, not, you know, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me. The, but they all seem to lead in that the, the, the Masonic's order is kind of like the, the connecting tissue or the, or the spokes in a wheel that kind of connects out to all the other secret societies. You see it woven into to all the other ones. Yeah. Is that kind of how you see it? Because that's kind of how I see it. it. It is. If you want to, to, to look at society, and it, again, remember, remember that masonry, its main target was... To, to destroy Christianity that was the first target um, because you can't have people uh, even if they belong to groups that, that have been uh, technically stagnant for a long time uh, the, the salt loses its, its uh, flavor or savor as they say yes. uh, but the fact is uh, in people who are, who are religious they might just fight because they think they have rights from a god see that was the, that was the whole point of it if you can destroy that I, that idea that you have rights given by a creator uh, and the governments cannot take those rights away from you then that, that creates a problem for those who want to dominate so they had to destroy existing religions and it's so amazing that, it was, that the masonry through its own books in fact its official books will admit to that very proudly that they help bring down the old established institutions but meanwhile what are they themselves Albert Pike says it in his own book and he was the Pope of Freemasonry and he said that was, that was Morals and Dogma from his book he said, he said make no mistake we are a religion so here's this religion that's scattered from the smallest village to the biggest city all through the Americas and the Western world and even the Eastern world, uh, coexisting with, with every other types of religions, and yet uh, we think of them as a charitable institution. And in their own writings, Masonry boasts that everything that's happened, even the, the educational system that we have today in the Western world, it was their members who went forward to advocate it. It's Freemasonry that have a, up on their own sites that they want every child to carry the chip, the identification chip, for their own safety, of course. Uh, it's the Masons who lead the charge for fingerprinting of all children who become adults, remember. Those, those prints stay the same. Uh, you've got to stay, say, wait a minute, what is this charitable institution? Why, is it, why does it have secrets? Why does it have secrets? And, and, um, and how come it, it is a particular religion who work very, very hard towards the great work, as they call it? Um, how come there's no restraints on them? Yeah. Yeah, do, do you agree with the term secret society being addressed to, you know, or being used to describe organizations like them? Well, under the guise of charities, uh, the, we've got to realize that this is, this is the front line. This is, this is how they disguise themselves. It isn't until you get into their work that you find out they have an actual political and social agenda that is regulated from a headquarters 
in the world. And the, if you want to be a good Mason, you must follow those dictates and bring in those mandates and work towards those mandates. And, and then you get rewarded by going up the ladder, old Jacob's ladder. So uh, we have a society with secrets, as they say. And they do pick they, anyone who's anyone in information uh, from a local newsman to, to whatever, uh, you have to get into that society really to get up the ladder or you won't go very far. You won't go very far. The, the, the one thing that I see all the time, I see different things now relating back to you know, the, how the secret societies are you know, kind of woven right through the texture of our society. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, take, for example, I walked out of seeing the movie. I'm a big movie buff. Uh, was with my wife and we saw the, the latest Batman film. Mm-hmm. Well, on the wall is a picture you know, for, the, for the movie, a poster, and there is Heath Ledger dressed up as the Joker holding a knife down at his side. And if you look at his feet, and I'm looking at the poster as I'm walking out, and you look at his feet, his feet are in the f- exact same setting that they would use as a third-degree mason, that tap yeah. across it, it's called. Yes. And it's right there, right hidden in plain view. And I, and I call it the Masonic Joker. It's absolutely amazing. I sent that out to a couple of people that are more familiar with that stuff than I am, and they were like, my God, I didn't see that before. That's amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. Look at that. It's the perfect the perfect form that they would use for that. Yeah, you, you'll see it in lots of things, even the album covers for a lot of uh, groups for teenagers, the ones who've joined the OTO. Uh, sect of Freemasonry uh, it's all through society it's everywhere you look uh, you look at if you go into a, a town or a city the first thing we see uh, a mile out of town is the big billboard with all uh, the eastern star the different Masonic lodges and so on they're telling you who owns that and runs that city right why um, uh, 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 why is it I just lost my train of thought uh with the Masons, why is it that they, uh, it seems that they're, all their phraseology, excuse me, all their phraseology, you have like uh, all these different terms and things seem to have been like littered right out into the, the speech that we use in everyday use. I think like the third degree or mm-hmm. life begins at 40, there's different terms that we hear and it comes right out of the Masonic societies, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. Uh, their whole uh, our language uh, they claim themselves was created by some of their their members I mean English language is not an old language the language we have today called English because before John Dee and his boys um, and Francis Bacon's time as well uh, we spoke old Saxon type German in England and if you look at the writings of Chaucer and others you'll, you'll see that right there that, that, that it was definitely a Germanic language and we find that, that um, John Dee and Francis Bacon and many others uh, said in their own writings that they were creating a new language to be called English, which would be the international language of the future. Yeah, it's, uh, I was talking with my wife, who just was taking a trip internationally, and I had learned from someone that was a pilot for many years that, you know, if you go to, like, a Middle Eastern country or some country they don't, or even down in, say, South America, where they don't normally speak English. The language of the air is English. All the yes. traffic controllers, the captains of the airplanes, the people that have to be radioing back and forth, they all have to speak really good English. Mm-hmm. So you can't have all these planes up flying around in the air and everybody speaking 16 different languages. Yes. And, and it, 
uh, it never occurred to me before. And it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. It's also the, the, the business language of the world as well. Does that kind of go back to like in, with the Romans where when they were, you know, holding meetings for government, they would speak in one language, the common people spoke in another, is it kind of along those lines? It is too, but the language itself is actually encoded, and the higher masons are taught the coding as well. Uh, the alphabet itself is also another language is by itself, uh, and in three or four different levels, in fact, of understanding. Uh, the, the, so the whole thing was set up and Pike said this himself, Albert Pike he said we never speak so clearly as we do uh, when we're amongst the public in other words the public could hear them saying one thing when the members actually understood the inner meanings of what they were saying so they, they have all these techniques of communicating to each other which the public are oblivious of now you, you're talking about somebody who's very significant to Masonry, Albert Pike. There's another name that I'm aware of that he's also very uh, significant. That's Manley P. Hall. Yeah. How does he fit into this whole mess? What's his significance? Well, Manley P. Hall supposedly was set up by a very rich. This is what you'll find often: a, a very rich uh, multi-millionaires who uh, liked his writings and start, decided to back him and promote him. He was a Mason, a high-level degree. Freemason, and back in the 1930s even, he was the first one to openly, at least in that milieu, use the term uh, interdependence. We're creating a society, a world society of inter interdependence. Interdependence. And, and, yeah, and so now that's what, what's written into the UN Charter, it's written into the European Charter, and, and the Summit of the Americas is bringing in this interdependence. So he was well aware of the agenda and they needed an army to do it. So what army do you use? You use Freemasonry to do it. Anything which is organized uh, on that level, you see, is a very handy tool uh, to, bring it, to bring this world structure in. Yeah. Now, one thing that shocked me in the time that I've been looking at some of the stuff we're talking about is a lot of these groups, to really understand their significance on our society and to understand a lot of things that are happening right now in the days that we're living, you have to go back sometimes thousands of years because this is what they look at. And it's and it's, we talk about some of the stuff and some people may be watching and thinking, these two guys are nuts. But I'm not talking with Alan here about what I believe. This is what these people believe mm -hmm. and trying to understand where they're coming from. And they look at a lot of stuff that's very old, am I correct? And, and it has a great impact on what we're doing today. Yes, they, they have archives of history. That, that's why Professor Carl Quigley and others um, <coughs> were were not only historians and philosophers to an extent, but they were also tutors to, to governmental departments, especially the State Department. They taught diplomats uh, the cultures that they'd be going into and how to manipulate them. In Britain, you, you had the same sort of thing with Arnold Toynbee, who was the, the tutor for Rhodes Scholars for world government. Uh, so these characters uh, are, are well-placed, and they do know their, their, their stuff. They've got to have a, a grasp of history, a grasp of how certain people in the past swayed whole nations or conquered nations and you must also teach people uh, if you're going to be the aggressor what are the weak uh, points or the Achilles heel of different societies how can you get in and dominate them and once you dominate them how can you keep uh, control over them this, this is, these are all sciences which are taught from archives real uh, in-depth archives because running society is to do with formula 
everything that you want the public to do or go along with it has a formula that's already worked at some time or another and Plato talks about this he said anything that's been done to the public in the past which they've accepted and gone along with can be done again in the future if you go through the same technique in other words the same formula uh, don't miss a step you must introduce it the same way so at one time in ancient history they could have the Greek women uh, giving up their firstborn to the mountains to die and then in comes the Christian era and suddenly it's a crime to do that and, and they'd stone the ones who used to follow the old religion so you can go back and forth as you say culture is very plastic and these guys know exactly how to control it yeah I mean to some people even to me I hear you say something about all the women sacrificing their children and I think well what woman would be would do that because the bond between mother and child being so strong is to me pure insanity I don't care what kind of religious devotion but then on the other hand I can look at news reports now where you know they may go and outlaw something like lemons because you may need to get a prescription mm -hmm. to, to eat lemons or something where food is going to be regulated. And to me and you and people watching us, that sounds just as crazy, but that's mm -hmm. what's on the horizon, right? Absolutely. If you look at the whole idea of the Green Project, the Greening Project, which is, is completely intertwined with a uh, sustainability agenda, which again comes from the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, they have built up an army. They call it, now, interestingly enough, one of the first, um, one of the main science fiction uh, writers or owners of a science fiction series, Star Trek series, was Gene, uh, was Rodenberry. And uh, he belongs to a NASA department and and he talked about the creation of the first earth army this became the environmental movement that would, that would tie in with the political movement for sustainability uh, well look at what we've got today we've got um, people who literally will almost kill you if, if, if you eat meat <laughs> Uh, you can uh, alter uh, the perceptions of people. You can make them fanatics by selective propaganda and and uh, through repetition uh, from many sources, and they will become right. fanatics. You have an army. Yeah. You have an army then, people that are willing to just mindlessly do, do your bidding. Yes. Um, and I see that a lot at a far more innocent level, and I think we got into that in the last show. But what for people watching at home who maybe have never really heard about a lot of this information, what's maybe the most important secret society that's operating out there today that maybe nobody's ever heard of, or very few people have? It's not so much... Um what they have to go into start off with is the ones which have a semi-official at least an official capacity to an extent that, that is the Council on Foreign Relations right. you can't join them you have to be asked in to them so uh, they also, from that you also have the Trilateral Commission from there look into the noble orders of, of England wh where you get knighted and you'll find that almost every major player is knighted by the Queen of England uh, Kissinger got knighted different presidents got knighted uh, even Gorbachev from the Soviet Union the president of the Soviet Union got knighted by the Queen uh, you are looking at something that's very important because now you're into the real high masonry now masonry uses architectural symbols and terminology because they build the world they build culture they build the future that's why they use those terms but it isn't until you get into the high degrees 
that you find out the noble orders. And so once you look at the members of CFR, Council of Foreign Relations and Royal Institute of International Affairs, Trilateral and so on, the ones who are running this world agenda on behalf of their masters, see how many of them belong to the noble orders of high royal Freemasonry. Hey, we got a few minutes left. Is there anything that I haven't covered on this important program that you'd like to get out on the air right now before we go off the air? I think people have to get active very quickly because what you're living through right now is not just a war to dominate the world where we can uh, take our shoes off and breathe a sigh of relief and sit down. Uh, this is a war to end society and humanity as we know it. Science has been raised up to be the new god and through science they will dictate to us everything we must do including uh, what your offspring if you're allowed to even have them will be like they want to remove genes insert genes all the rest of it what they're looking at really is a, a society uh, that doesn't have to be watched and entertained uh, and has individual free will they want a controlled a perfectly predictable society and predictability is the key. I sometimes wonder what the old Roman Empire with the Caesars and the circuses and the arena, can you imagine what they would have done with something like 24-hour-a-day news networks and, yes. and shows like American Idol? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same technique that is used on the public on a bigger scale and it's working very well. Most people are so mind-bombed they can't tell reality from fiction and now they're working on a generation that publicly said that shortly the children will be unable to tell a virtual reality from the real world. That's where they're taking us. And you know what's interesting, I've noticed a trend now where if you put on the Weather Channel it's like there's a hurricane out, you know, in the Atlantic. And around this time of year, Alan, we all know that's really not news. We're going to have hurricanes. Yeah, they're, they're, they're always have. Always have, every year. Hurricane Ike down in the Gulf right now. And it's mm -hmm. like people are, like, freaking out like they just figured out, like, you know, who Jack the Ripper really was. That's right. Some mind-blowing thing. And I'm like, okay, it's a hurricane. I know it's really bad, but there's really no need to have this level of panic. Yes. And uh, once again, we're to be taught, you see, we have to be taught that we are causing the bad weather. This is the key to it. And when they started up the weather channel, I thought, well, who on earth when he's watched 24-hour weather channels? Well, suddenly on the weather channel, when it opened up, a drizzle became a flood. Uh, right. An inch of snow be became a blizzard. Uh, and so on. In other words, that they hype up the perception that the weather is changing. As you say, they've had hurricanes there from long before Columbus came along. It's an annual event. <laughs> It happens all the time. It's like, I remember a whole bunch of them last. I remember another one called Katrina, right? Yes, that's but, right. Uh, but, yeah, so it's just one of these things of conditioning people and getting people used to new normals. And that's the thing that I really pick on, have picked up on with you that it never really dawned on me before that, you know, they can change my perception of what I perceive to be, quote, normal. Mm -hmm. I mean... I'll give you an example that I like to use. You go back to the 1950s. If you saw somebody back then walking down the street acting like these kids do when they're impersonating rap artists, they put a straitjacket on them and throw them in the nearest, you know, site. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
We've got less than a minute. Anything real quick in about 15, 20 seconds that you would like to leave the uh, viewer mm-hmm. before we go off the air? People have to start using their own logic and, and trusting in their own perceptions and not waiting for the media to tell them what to perceive or how to perceive it or what your conclusions should be. Um, we've got to start. Uh, this, is, this is self-preservation here. If, you, if you're not like a wild animal that uses its, its ability for self-preservation, then you're gone. And that's what's happened to most of society. They've been domesticated, and they don't trust themselves anymore. We are running out of videotape. Thank you so much for doing these two shows with me tonight. And uh, please tune in and listen to Alan on Monday, Wednesdays, and Friday nights, 8 p.m. on RBN. Go look for it out on the web of Republic Broadcasting. I'm, of course, Kevin Gallagher for Alan Watt. Tune in again next week and see what it is we'll be talking about. Have a great night. And, Alan, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.